The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to two places of Scripture today. Ephesians chapter 6, and then also, if you'll find, Revelation chapter 20. Our subject, once again, is the delusion of the devil, and we're winding our way down uh, to the end of several weeks of study on the great enemy of the human race. And perhaps you might expect me to say the great enemy of the Christian, and that would certainly be true. But I think that we also have to be reminded that Satan is really the enemy of the entire world. That you don't have to be religious to be affected by Satan, and you can ignore him if you want. You can think that he's just a figment of the imagination of superstitious religious people. But he is your enemy, even if you've never heard a word about him or ever heard anything about Jesus Christ, he is the enemy. And what I'm trying to say is that denying religion and denying the existence of God, denying anything that's supernatural is not going to make you immune to what the devil does, all the consequences of what happens in this supernatural, spiritual world. Now, for those of you sitting here this morning, most of you, this information is not new to you. When, when I'm preaching on Sunday morning to the church, I expect to find many more saved people in the congregation than we do the lost. Uh, if, if we didn't, we'd be in serious trouble, I think. We, we certainly do expect that the saved are going to be here, so... Much of what I preach to you is informational only. I'm just reminding you of things that we already know. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when you preach to the church, you preach to everybody the Word of God. They need to hear it all, even the things that they've heard before. We never know when there might be someone who's sitting in the church listening to the Word of God who professes Christianity, but they're not really a believer in Jesus. And so these things have to be repeated often and take heed to every word that's said. Now, Satan is slated for destruction, and his destruction will be yours too if you don't turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. The Bible teaches that every person that doesn't believe in Jesus will suffer the very same punishment that Satan will suffer, and that punishment is destruction in hell. Now, uh, that's true whether you know, uh, if you follow the devil in ignorance, or if you know about these things, either way, that's what the destruction is going to be. But at least we do know this, that after hearing these sermons, no one can plead ignorance. Now, if you look at the first text in Ephesians, uh, these verses are very familiar to us now. Uh, in the early, earlier part of this letter of Ephesians, Paul gave tremendous doctrine. And now he writes on to the end of this letter, and he's telling the people here in Ephesus that all good doctrine is apt to be perverted by Satan. And if we're not careful to observe the things that are written here, then we can very easily fall into the activities of the destroyer. So he says in chapter 6 and verse number 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, in these past few weeks, we've covered a lot of Scripture, 
as we've talked about Satan. And in the beginning, I told you that there is more said about Satan than any other personality, any other God's creatures uh, in the Bible. Now, of course, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the main subjects of Scripture. Those are the main personalities. But among God's creatures, there's none that's spoken more of than this one who is called Satan. So he is a very profound personality in the Scriptures. Now, in the earliest part of Scripture, Satan is there. Genesis chapter 3, you find Satan there at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis may not be the oldest book of the Bible. Many believe that Job is actually the oldest book. And there, within just six verses of the beginning of Job, you find Satan is there. As you go through the 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find that Satan is always there. He's always present. And even times when he's not mentioned specifically, the effects of his evil work are always there. If you look in the book of Esther, you won't even find God mentioned there. You don't find Satan mentioned there. But you know that it's God's providence that protected Israel and Esther from destruction. And that destruction is there because of Satan's work, because of what he did. So we see the effects of Satan all throughout the Scriptures, wherever the Bible uh, talks about God and talks about following God. There's always Satan who's there to oppose him. Now, Satan then is at the beginning of the Scripture, and you can follow him all the way through it to the end in Revelation, right down to the 20th chapter. And here in that 20th chapter is where we find that Satan's career is ended. Whenever you see the plan of redemption, Satan is always going to be there. I just mentioned Genesis chapter 3, and there Satan is there when God made the very first promise that Jesus would come into the world. Satan was there at the cross, and he was uh, tempting men, and he was encouraging men to crucify Jesus. He was there at the resurrection, telling lies about the resurrection of Christ. And so he's all throughout the Bible. He never stops, and he will not stop. Until God gets rid of him forever. Oh, heaven is going to be a wonderful place because Satan and his helpers and all evil are going to be gone forever. Now, if you've already turned to Revelation, just, just take a minute to skip over to the 21st chapter in verse number 27. And there's a promise there that Satan is never going to hurt God's people again. It says, And there shall in no wise enter into it, that is, into heaven, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then if you just go a little bit further to the 22nd chapter in verse number 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So heaven is going to be a wonderful place because of the presence, the eternal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a wonderful place because of the eternal absence of this personality that we know who is Satan. Now, if you'll look in the 20th chapter, and verses 7 through 10, we're going to continue in the fourth part of our outline, and that is Satan's destruction. Verse number 7, Revelation chapter 20. And when the thousand years are expired... Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, 
And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse number 10 is the final end of Satan. Now he hangs around almost to the end of the Bible, but he's not there at the end. And at the very end of the Bible is where God describes the beauty of eternity with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that eternity is never going to be marred by Satan and sin. Verse number 7 says, When the thousand years are expired. Now, 1,000 years. We know that's the time of the millennial kingdom. That's the time when Christ is going to rule upon this earth in perfect righteousness. That's the time when Satan will be locked in the abyss, God is going to hold him down there. And while he's there, the world will enjoy the sunshine of God's glory. There will be marvelous prosperity and God's providence seen all over the world. And during that time, the world will get a chance to see what it would be like if Satan was never here. The world will get a chance to see what it would be like if Adam never fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. The world would be a much different place. And what God does there in the millennium is to give us a picture of what the world can be like without sin and without Satan. And of course, it's a vastly superior place than what we have here. Now you see, you don't really have to be religious to uh, get the effects of Satan. Even the atheist lives in a world that would be far better for him if God's will was always done on earth as it is in heaven. Satan is the enemy of atheists too. But, of course, there never would be an atheist in a sinless world. And there won't be any atheist when Jesus is here reigning in a visible kingdom. Now, what we've done here over the past few weeks, we started out by describing how that Satan's destruction is actually a two-part plan. God has two parts to the plan of destroying Satan. And we look at the first part of it, and that's holding Satan down in the, in the abyss while the millennial kingdom is here. But now we've come to the second part. And this is where God gets rid of Satan forever. That's where we are right now. And that starts with his release from prison. So we look at his release. Now in verse number 7 it says that he's released from the abyss and his first action when he comes out of that place where God has held him is to go back to his old form once again. Satan is not rehabilitated. Those years that he spent there in the abyss have not changed him. No amount of time will ever change him. And God didn't put him in the abyss hoping that he would teach him a lesson and that somehow Satan would change his mind, would be different, and finally he would straighten up. Oh, a million years is never going to make Satan change. But we sure do think that a thousand years of perfect peace and prosperity, a thousand years of righteousness, a thousand years of the greatest time that the world has ever seen, we would surely think that a thousand years would change people's minds. That a thousand years would make people different from what they are now. And so we would never think that if Satan is let out of the prison that anybody would ever want Satan to rule them again. They would never want to go back to a world where Satan is in charge and all the problems that come from that. But the reaction of the people when Satan is let loose is far different than we would imagine. And so we've also looked at his reception. Satan is received in a, in a very strange way. And it's because of this common bond that exists between all people that live in the millennium. All of these people are human. They all have their old Adamic nature. 
And the basic fundamental flaw of all people is in them, and they are not changed when Satan comes back on the scene. And so he comes back and he finds that people are basically the same as they always were. Every person is a natural enemy of God. Oh, most people don't believe that, but that's what the Bible teaches. Every person is a natural enemy of God. Every person is hostile against God. We see that plainly stated in the Scriptures. Romans chapter 8 makes it clear to us that we do not like God's authority. It says there, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And when Paul says they that are in the flesh, he's not talking about the skin that covers your bones, he's talking about what you are by nature. They that are in the flesh are those that have the old nature. They are not spiritual. They are carnal. They are sold under sin. And all of us are that way. All of our thoughts and our actions, everything that we do is controlled by that old nature that we have. Now, many people say, well, I know everybody is fundamentally good. That even the worst of people, if you look deep enough, if you look hard enough, that you'll find that good spark in everybody, a spark of divinity, they say sometimes. You'll find goodness in everybody. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Bible teaches that all people are fundamentally bad, and you don't have to look very hard at all to find out that there is sin underneath everything that we do. Sin is present in all of us. There's a raging fire of evil that's common to all of us. Now, the problem with these people that are in the millennium, they still have their sin nature, and that's why it's necessary for Christ to rule them with force. Now, isn't that interesting? He rules them with force. You know, there are so many people that say, well, God is never going to interfere with the human will. He's never going to force people to obey him. Well, you just wait. You just wait. You ask people in the millennium whether God forces people to obey him. But in any case, all people that are born in the millennium come into a perfect environment where the kingdom is one of prosperity, as I've said. Everything is conducive to following Jesus Christ, but hearts are not changed. Now, I made this point a week or so ago. Maybe it was in the forum class. I didn't get to do it during the sermon. But I believe that everybody that goes into the millennium uh, is going to be a saved person. Every person in the millennium at the beginning is a saved person. But all these saved people have children. They're still human, and so they have children. And all those that are born into the kingdom never have their hearts changed. But what does happen is that they are reformed in their actions. They, they have been cleaned up on the outside, but their hearts have never been turned towards God. And so as we discussed last week, when Satan is released, the reception is good, or it's bad, depending on the way that you look at it. And so amazingly, Satan is able to deceive the nations again. Well, what does that deception lead to? Well, we see thirdly, it leads to the rebellion. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. 
Now, verse 8 shows that Satan's deception is worldwide. His demons are released with him, and so they incite a worldwide rebellion. Now, Satan doesn't have to go looking for a fringe group of radicals and convince them to join them. This is, this is a, a global rebellion. From every corner of the earth, the Bible says, from east and west, from north and south, from all points of the, of the compass, rebellion brews. Now, interestingly, though, there are some who say it's not a worldwide rebellion. There's one very old commentator, dead for several years now, who believed that, that uh, this is the rebellion of some barbaric nations, that these are a few that are left uncivilized during the kingdom, and they are the rogues that actually oppose Christ. But I can't see how that's possible. I don't see how there can be any uncultured barbarians when the social order of the kingdom has been lifted. I mean, this is one of the great benefits that you have of the millennial kingdom is the social order. So this kingdom has all kinds of advancement of people socially. But after a thousand years here, and, and uh, we're not going to be looking at a situation where there are what we would call low-lifers that live in the kingdom. No, everybody is socially advanced at this time. Every child that's been ruined by a secular humanist agenda will have the benefit of a Christian education. The knowledge of Christ will cover the world. Every school will have the Ten Commandments in the school. And every morning, children are going to re recite the Pledge of Allegiance to King Jesus. So we're talking here about people where there's great knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we don't find actually any fringe radicals that are in the kingdom. These are people that come from every nation, all of them, and that's exactly the point that I want to show you in just a minute. And when this rebellion happens, there won't be an excuse. Oh, that happened because there are just a few of the rogues out there. There are just a few people that turn against Christ. Now, have you ever read anything in Scripture that said that only refined people or the refined people are the ones that come to Christ? Are people that are refined and socially high, are they the ones that, that are, are disposed to come to Christ? Is it only barbarians that reject Him? Doesn't the Scripture say that there's not many wise, there's not many mighty, there are not many noble that are called? High society rejects Jesus, doesn't it? And every person that you find here is a person of advantage. The prosperity of the kingdom uh, guarantees there is no poverty. Everyone enjoys a good living. And religiously they are superior because for a thousand years God has tolerated no false doctrine. There are no false preachers out there in the pulpits broadcasting around the world all these things that they talk about, these things that, that aren't the true doctrines of God. That's not going to be during the millennium. He's not, the Lord's not going to permit that. And so religiously, the people have been elevated as well. And so the only reason there can be a worldwide rebellion, rebellion is because of this fundamental flaw that exists in people, that exists in all of us, and that is that we are consumed with the evil of our sinful nature. Now, another thing that we should note is that this is a grassroots rebellion. It's a populist rebellion. And that's because there isn't any formal structure for it. There is no political uh, structure for this. In this time, there is only one political party. That is the party of Jesus Christ. That's the only one that there is. Now, before this, in the time of tribulation... The world is going to unite under another party, under a different party, under the party of the Antichrist. Some have called it the Democrats. 
I'm not sure if that's the name of it or not, but uh, in the millennium, in the millennium, that party's going to be done away with. And so there is only one party, the party of Jesus Christ. Everything else has been banished. Read chapter 18 in Revelation for description of that. So Satan has no governments to work with. He has no political figures to work with. All of the ones that are ruling in the kingdom are followers of Christ. The apostles are there. They sit on 12, tri- uh, 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. You and I that are believers now, we're coming back to Christ to rule with him, to help in the administration of the kingdom. And so Satan has to take this appeal directly to the people. He and his demons influence one person at a time until this grassroots movement becomes a raging prairie fire. And it doesn't take him very long to do it because evil hearts are always disposed towards evil. And so these are people that are easily stirred up and there are so many of them The Word of God says they're like sands on the seashore in number. And why so many? Well, because the earth has become like the Garden of Eden. The earth is, is, uh, uh, disease has gone. People live a long, long time. And so there'll be this great population explosion. There's a rebellion among all these people that are not disposed to follow Christ. These are people that have been forced with a rod of iron, and it's against that rod that they will rebel. So what's the outcome of the rebellion? Do you think that there's any of these that would follow Satan if they thought that they couldn't defeat King Jesus? So what is the outcome of it? Well, fourthly, is the devastation. Devastation. Verse number 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, if they're going to attack Christ, where do they have to go for the attack? There's only one place they can go. They have to go to Jerusalem. The capital city of the millennium is Jerusalem. This little obscure city in this one little country of the world where the Jews have no control now, that's going to become the capital city in the millennial kingdom. And it's amazing that this, this, this little bitty sliver of, a sliver of land becomes the capital of the greatest nation, the greatest kingdom that the world has ever seen. And so they go to Jerusalem and they surround the city with all intentions that they will mount an assault. One author described it as sheer madness that anyone would do this, sheer madness that anyone would oppose the Lord God. But evidently, these people are mad. Maybe they're suffering from mad cow disease, I don't know. But I tend to think that mad cows are even smarter than to try this. This is what the human depraved nature does. This is how powerful the old nature is. It never changes. It never stops fighting God unless God does something like to rule with an iron rod. But what happens here is that God relaxes that rule for just a little bit. He allows Satan out. He allows Satan to deceive again. And he does that to show us that what he said about the human heart is true. God knows that this will happen. Don't think for a minute that God let Satan out of prison with this thought. Oh, I sure do hope that he's changed. Let, let, let's grant him parole, and let's see if things have changed with him. Let's see if this taught him a lesson. And so God lets him out, and then he sees what Satan does, then God says, what a bonehead mistake. Why did I ever do that? Look what he did. 
No, don't think that. He knows exactly what's going to happen. In fact, God intends for this to happen. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I get discouraged by all the bad things that happen, and I you know, get concerned about things that I, that I face, difficult times that I face. But then I look at things in Scripture like this, and I see that God is going to work out all things for our good. This is going to be for our good. God always has a good plan for His children, and this good plan is that He's going to end opposition forever. That's the good plan. Now, do you understand this, that everything that I'm teaching you right now puts us at odds with just about everybody in the religious world and everybody in the non-religious world? They are at odds with us because they don't like me to talk about Satan's, or rather man's, depravity. Nobody wants to hear that God would actually have some kind of ill intention towards them. Oh, they're convinced that God will just take them the way they are. God will pat them on the back. He'll say, your sin is okay. Do what you want to do. You're okay with me. Have you ever noticed how the world does this? They, they, they commend sin. They pat sin on the back. They say, it's okay. It's, it's good. Oh, we applaud people. We applaud their courage when they come out of the closet, don't we? Bruce Jenner, I mean, he was hailed a hero. I think he was named Woman of the Year. Bruce Jenner, Woman of the Year. I mean, the most courageous woman because he succumbed to his inner urge to become a woman. Which, by the way, he is not. He is a mutilated man. He is a, he is a hideous-looking female wannabe. Now, for all of that, evil is lurking in the human heart. That's a different worldview from yours and mine. It's a different worldview, but there's only one worldview that counts. That's God's worldview. And God is going to show which worldview does count when without mercy he condemns everyone that doesn't go his way. Now we notice something, or as I looked at this, I noticed something very, very interesting about the history that the Bible has with Satan. Uh, with all the trouble that he's caused, and I've just mentioned, he's, he's talked about so much in the Scripture. He's there at the beginning. He's there as you go through. He's there at the end. With all that's written about him, all that's said, all his prominence, all the opposition that he has, we come down to the end, and God states his destruction in two sentences. Just two sentences. And, and this, this is like, it's a footnote to God. Satan is just a footnote. Now, there's no horrific battle that takes place. There are no war correspondents that are on the scene of this battle who record the blow by blow. There's no one who says, well, look at the bravery of all these people that have come to fight against King Jesus. Look at all these people that have come out of the closet after all these years of the tyrannical reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's applaud them for their courage to stand up against Jesus. Oh, I don't think so. There, there's no strategy for this battle. They head to Jerusalem with all intentions that they're going to overthrow Christ, but they never even get to fire a shot. There's no bloodshed here. Satan has deceived all of these people to lead them there for one purpose. God has them all gathered there so he can destroy them all at one time. Just get rid of them all at one time. Now, they're prepared to fight, but God then rains down fire and destruction upon them. Fire comes down from heaven and devours them all, so it's Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. They're burned to crispy critters, and that's the end of them. And so here we have Satan's last hurrah. Verse number 10, creation is finally done with the devil. But it brings us back to something that we haven't quite 
yet figured out. And that is why. Why is there a two-stage destruction for Satan? Why didn't God end it in the first stage? Why didn't God leave him in the abyss? Why, why didn't God just let that be the end of it? Why did he ever let him out? Well, let's take a look at that. I think there are at least three compelling reasons for it. We're going to look at God's intention. What did God intend to say by this? Why, why let him out of the abyss? Well, three compelling reasons, I think, for the reason, that God, or the reason that God did this. The first one is that God did it to show that he's right about the human heart. God let him out to prove that he's right about the human heart. Now, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can evolve into a better society. Now, you look at all the advantages that Americans have. I mean, people come to America, other countries, people from other countries want to come here because this is the best place to live. We, we don't have a problem with immigration in America because people don't want to come here. No, they do want to come here. America's become the gold standard for the world for years. People want to come and to live in America. But we look at what we are, and we look at what our society is like, and what do we find? When I was first working on this message several weeks ago, it was right after the shooting in San Bernardino. And we might not be too concerned about what happened there if it was an isolated case. Now, we would be sad for sure. It's a bad thing for people to be killed like that. But it wouldn't raise any particular alarms because we would say, oh, that's just a random thing. That's just an isolated case. But is it isolated? It's not isolated. These kinds of things have become epidemic in our society. You read about it in the news almost every day that something like this happens. I think I was watching the news yesterday. Uh, I think they said there was over 300 mass shootings in 2015 in America. <laughs> over 300, that's one a day, isn't it? Almost one a day. Mass shootings in America. As I said, we wouldn't be too concerned about it if it wasn't so frequent. Every week it's in the news. Now here's what you need to do. When you go to the Santa Rosa Mall, keep your head down. Because you don't know if some person that this government has let into our society who hasn't been fully vetted, has hasn't been radicalized, and he wants to shoot you. Keep your head down. We're not even safe when we come to church. Now we've had some discussions about this. Uh, how are we going to protect ourselves? Uh, uh, what are we going to do? Like the mass shooting of a in that church in South Carolina past, this past summer. We know that that could happen here. That's what our society is like. You see, God is right about the human heart. Now, in the millennial kingdom, he gives every advantage to people. He gives them perfect government. He gives them plentiful prosperity. And he proves that the scriptures are right about us. He's Isaiah chapter 1 says, Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's not pretty but it proves that God is right. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We say that we're good, and he says, not so fast. There is none of you good. There is none of you righteous. No, not one. And I think that we would ought, to, ought to know that. I think that we should know it by observing our own behavior. 
There is none good. But that's a sticking point between us and other churches. I tell you what the Bible says you are and how to cure it. And they say, well, there's really not a problem. You don't actually need a cure. You're fine. Now, reason number two for God to let Satan out is that God is right about the devil's deception. God does this to prove Satan's character. Now, how many ways can God show us that every alluring temptation that Satan puts in front of our eyes is no good for us? Everything that he puts in front of us is going to hurt us. Sin is never worth the pain. And the devil is deceptive enough to make you think that you can stop sinning anytime you want. The devil says, well, just indulge it a little bit. Just go a little bit into it. Do it a time or two. But you find out it's not so easy to stop, is it? The devil incites that. The devil instigates you to sin. And you find out that you have no control over your sin. You can't stop any time that you want. You know, does nobody ever tire of this argument? How many times have you heard people say, well, there can't be an election, there can't be a predestination of people because we're not puppets. Get this into your hard head, Pinocchio. You are a puppet right now. You are a puppet of Satan. He pulls the cords of evil and you follow him wherever he wants you to go. You follow him because you're, he's the puppet master and you are his puppet. And that's really the theme of these nine sermons. That we have no ability to defend ourselves against the devil. The only ability we have comes from God. And we are eager to follow the devil every time that he calls. And we're not going to escape his power except God, by his power, should choose to do something about our hard heads. So you easily fall into Satan's plan. God shows that in verses 7 to 9. That's how things work in the real world. And then there's a third reason for two-stage destruction. And that is that God is right about real righteousness. What about the righteousness of the kingdom with all these people? Righteousness is not a show that you can put on. Righteousness is not because you go to church. Righteousness is... Not because you've chosen the right haircut or you've put on the right clothes. Righteousness is not your environment. And let me stop there for just a minute because I don't often talk about these things. I, I don't preach too much about external righteousness. Uh, I'm more into internal righteousness. But I will say this, that internal righteousness will produce external righteousness. If you're right in your heart, it will produce what something different on the outside. I definitely do believe that. Let me point out something to you interesting from Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Thankfully, I've got a, I've got a, a sympathetic crowd today, so just hold on here. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Do you understand the reference here? You should recognize that God is speaking about cross-dressing. And he's telling us that it's perversion to cross-dress. In other words, we have a prohibition here against transvestism. Now, you probably never thought about it this way, but all those years that the preacher kept telling you, women don't put on men's clothes. Women don't put on men's clothes. Women don't put on men's clothes. The reason they kept telling you that was because they were right, because someday it was going to come down to the very thing that you see on the street corner every day. And that is, men 
wearing women's clothes. That's the biggest problem I think that we have now. Men wearing women's clothes. Now notice this scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. There it says, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Did you ever put that scripture together with Deuteronomy 22, verse 5? That a man with long hair is acting as a transvestite? That he appears as something that he's not supposed to be? Doesn't the Bible say that a woman's hair is a what? Covering to her. Doesn't it say that? The woman's hair is a covering to her. And isn't hairstyle, isn't that a part of our fashion? We all know that. So why do we have trouble with gender identity today? Well, kids look at their dads and they don't see anything different between him and mom. And when the kids have, the boys have girls' hair, don't, don't expect that, or you can't expect rather, they're going to want to wear girls' clothing when they get older. Those things happen. The Bible knows about these things. Oh, God is remarkably consistent about this. Men look like men. Women are to look like women. And the next verses there in 1 Corinthians say that a woman's hair is her glory. So I'll tell you this too. Women, don't cut off all your hair. There should be a difference between you and the man. You're supposed to look different from the man. And God is right about all of this stuff. He knows what will happen if we don't listen to what the societal orders that he's given us. But here's the thing. Righteousness is not an external thing. People can be made to met to meet all of these external standards. And that's what happens during the millennial kingdom. Everybody is forced to meet an external standard. And so in the millennium, people act righteously. They do the right stuff because they're not allowed to do otherwise. Now, this is not a blight upon God, but it shows us the danger, the danger of dwelling on externals when there hasn't been a change of heart. It's a fooling thing. Now, ultimately... God's purpose in a two-stage destruction is to let Satan out to prove God's righteousness and to set the stage for the destruction of the wicked. Now, here's the thing. You can't get out of the world without dying. Did you know that? You can't get out of this world without dying. And so what God does when he's ready to end the world, you've got all these people that are in the world, he's ready to end it, but you've got all these people in the world, so what's he got to do? To get them all out of the world, they're going to have to die. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. That's, that's what God's Word says. I don't know how to make this easier for you. This is just what God says. I know it's not popular, but this is what will happen. It doesn't, it, it, you know, it doesn't get, matter who what I say about things. I, I want to tell you what God says. So we always point you to the Scriptures for the verification. God is going to end the lives of all these unbelievers. Now that's a sad thing. It's a terrible thing for them. They never came to know Jesus Christ, and God's going to end it all, and he's just going to burn them all up. Well, that leaves me then with the main point of the message. What is God going to do with Satan? Now, he allowed him out for a purpose. He had him in for a purpose, and that purpose was fulfilled, so he let him out to fulfill the second purpose. And so we're now at the second purpose. God let him out to destroy him and all those that are evil that follow him. Now, isn't this something? Because we look at this and we see that all the way back from the very beginning that Satan has been following a predetermined plan. Satan has been following what God has determined will be done. Now, I know that you're going to struggle with this because many people do. They just can't see that, that there is a plan out there. God planned and purposed before the beginning of the world, and Satan is doing nothing other than fulfilling the plan that's set out there. He does everything that he wants to do, but everything works within God's plan. 
Now, we see then that Satan does what he wants to do, and God could have, if he wanted to, he certainly could have stopped Adam from listening to Satan. He could have stopped all of that if he wanted, but instead he gave, Satan, uh, gave Adam the ability to make a choice. Is he going to follow Satan or is he going to follow God? He left him with that choice. And when, when, when Satan tempted Adam, he fell. And God knew at that very moment, I've, th- th- this is the way it's going to be because through this, Jesus Christ is going to be magnified. He will be magnified by overthrowing sin and using His mercy and His grace and His love to lift people from the mire of sin and save them and take them to heaven. And so we allow Satan to do everything that he does here to give an open display of the wickedness of man. Now Satan does this without even realizing that every step that he takes will exalt the mercy and the grace and the justice of God. Satan in the beginning said, I will exalt myself above the, above the stars of heaven. I will be like the Most High. And God said, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And here it is. From this day, or from the day that God created him as an angel of light, he gave him the title of the anointed cherub, God had in view how this would end, and how it would magnify the name of Jesus Christ in all of heaven and earth, and they would recognize his power and authority. Now, the end of Satan is destruction in the fires of hell. And the fires of that torment are the same for all that follow him in their opposition to God. Now, I intend to speak about hell in the following sermons. As I said uh, earlier today, I'm going to expand this series to talk a little bit, no, actually talk a lot, to talk a lot about what hell is like for Satan and his followers. We're going to look at the biblical doctrine of hell. But before we do that, let me just give you with a few thoughts on hell, and then we'll end for today. Some people say that the fire of hell is not literal. And they say that the fire, that, that's a metaphor, and really all that hell is is separation from God. Hell is separation from God. And that would be horrible, wouldn't it? It'd be horrible to be separated from God. A world without God would be abysmal. That's true whether you're saved or you're lost. And I suppose that that thought sort of drives this opinion of why hell doesn't have to be fire in order to be a very bad place. But let's suppose that we look at separation from God from Satan's perspective. How does he feel about being separated from God? Is hell bad for Satan? Because he's separated from God? Well, you look at Satan. Is he dependent upon God for food? Is he dependent upon God for a place to live? Is he dependent upon God because he needs to feel sunshine on his skin every day? Does he need God for his prosperity and for his peace like people that are living in the millennium? Does separation from God mean anything at all to Satan? Well, separation was the thing that he wanted from the very beginning. He wanted a universe without God. He wanted to be God. So does he care if God says to him, Now, Satan, if you do this, you're going to be separated from me forever. And Satan says, Yeah, so what? Yeah, what? It's no deterrent to Satan or even to fallen man to be separated from God. When Adam sinned, what did he want? He wanted no part of God. He, He... hid himself among the trees in the garden because he didn't want to be in the presence of God. 
So this is not really a deterrent alone to say, well, hell is a place of separation from God. Now, I can't think of a reason to call it fire unless it's fire. And I I tend to believe that if it's not fire, then fire is the closest thing that we can get in our imagination of what hell must be like. That it's actually far, far worse than fire, but we can't yet understand what that is. And so you don't want to take any comfort that it's not fire because you would wish that it is fire to alleviate your suffering from what it really is. It's going to be much, if it's not fire, it's much worse than fire. Now, others argue, well, yes, it is fire, but God's not going to leave people in hell forever. Uh, A person goes to hell to be burned up in an instant. He just ceases to exist just like that. And they think that hell is like Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, that you get too close to it, you get vaporized, like the men that threw the three Hebrew children into the fire were completely burned up when they got close to that fire. But is annihilation what the Scripture teaches? Do we see that in verse number 10? Oh, here we see that hell torments day and night, forever and ever. Day and night, that's a term for continuously. So there's continuous pain, and there is no end. It's forever and forever, and forever is a long, long time. Now let me just add one more comment. We're going to talk about hell later, but who is already in the lake of fire? Well, if you turn your Bible back to chapter 19, verse 20. This is after the battle of Armageddon, just before the millennial kingdom. And there it says, And the beast was taken, that's the Antichrist. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then we go to chapter 20, verse 10, and it says Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. So that beast, that's the Antichrist, the false prophet is the third part of Satan's trinity. These two are men. Have they been burned up? Are they burned up when Satan is put there? No, they're put into the fire 1,000 years before Satan gets there, and they are still there, and they're still in conscious torment. So Satan is put into the fire. Now he's back with his old friends. Can you imagine what a reunion it's going to be? They'll sit in the fire, warming their hands, talking about all the good times that they had, what it was like when they had deceived the whole world. Everybody was following them. They're just having a good time. Haven't you heard people say things like that? Tell them that they're they're going to hell if they don't trust in Jesus Christ. You know what they say? Oh, that's okay. I got plenty of friends that are there. What kind of a friend are you? If you say, hey, good buddy, meet you in hell. I hope you make it. Isn't that foolish? Good times in hell? The last thing that you would ever want in hell is to have your friends and family there. Part of of the terrible thing about hell is that your sweet mother might be there. Your children might be there. The tortures of hell are worse because... You haven't taken care to protect your family by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ, by bringing them to church, by teaching them about the Lord, by asking God to save them from praying for praying for their souls, and they die and go to hell. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to you, to think that your loved ones are in hell. So what should you do? Turn to Jesus Christ. 
Turn and end the rebellion. Plead for His mercy and His grace. Plead for the salvation of you and your family so that you don't go to this awful place called hell. You don't want to have a family reunion in hell. Now let me, let me end it here. Here is something that you don't know. You, you, if you're lost without Jesus Christ, you don't know this. Your name is either on the roll call of heaven or it's on the roll call of hell. And you don't know which. You, you don't know. And I'm sure that you should be anxious to know where is your name. And you can find out about that, really. You can find out this secret. You can know right now whether your name is on the roll call of heaven. How do you know? How do you know that when God created the world and put all the names down before the foundation of the world, that your name is written on the roll call of heaven? Now, you don't need to argue with me that that can't be true because I've got Scripture on my side. Revelation 13.8, 17.8, I've got Ephesians 1.4, Acts 13.48, uh, Acts 15.18, I've got 2 Thessalonians 2.13. They all tell us when the names are written down. So it's there. How can you know where your name is? Well, here's the good news for you. You can know that your name is on the road call of heaven. One simple way. Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Come to Him in repentance and faith. Believe in Him and you'll know that your name is on the roll call of heaven. That's the only way that you're going to find out. Trust in Jesus Christ and you can know that today. Now someone has said that on the door to heaven, there's a huge sign that says, Whosoever will may come. And on the back side of that door it says, Welcome home. I chose you from before the foundation of the world. Only God is able to put those two things together. Did you know that? Only God can do that. Trust Jesus Christ. Trust him now. And he will say to you, you came to me because I chose you. That's the truth of the word of God. Don't join the devil in hell. The destruction of hell is too horrible for you to go there. And you don't have to go there. All that you need to do is to trust Jesus Christ. That's all that you need to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you, Lord, for the great truth of your word, that you save souls. We're thankful for that. You tell us that if we believe you, we repent of our sins, we trust you, that you will save us. It doesn't matter who we are, where we came from, how bad sins that we've been in. It doesn't matter how much rejection that we've lived in. If we come now, all is forgiven. And you will take us home to be in heaven with you. We thank you, Lord, for that truth. And Lord, we pray for those who remain in their rejection, who go on day after day, never thinking about Christ, never coming to him, never even really thinking that the devil is their greatest enemy that's keeping their eyes blinded to the truth. They just don't care. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes of understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's a church member here today. They can't honestly say, well, I've got proof in my life that I truly am a Christian, when they know that they live like the devil every day. They're, they're still following the devil. Lord, there's going to be proof that we really do know you. Help us to understand that proof and to follow you, to give ourselves to you and have the assurance that we, that we need to have, that we are on that roll call of heaven. Lord, we thank you for these things. Bless our people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.